Good evening, everyone. I hope you're all surviving well. Your minds, your bodies. From this end, from being on this end of the interviews and watching you all, it's it, it's just inspiring. I'm I'm never. Um, uninspired by the courage that you people show in, in, in facing your stuff. So it's been wonderful to experience. Let me start with a little quote. A human being is part of a whole, called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. She experiences herself, her thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of her consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to the affectation for a few people near us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. That's Albert Einstein. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. I mean that sounds really good, really wise, but how in the world can that be possible, really? How is it possible to free yourself from this tight prison of small, contracted, embattled, solid self? That separate self. And the idea of widening circles of compassion to include all living creatures and all of nature, it's a bit of a stretch. Einstein and the Buddha uh, I mean, they saw the same potential for humanity. But for Einstein, it began and ended with a kind of wistful hope for our species. That we'd somehow find our way to this greater potential. What separates the Buddha from great minds like Einstein and others is this comprehensive pedagogy that he developed. He not only intuited the possibility of our freedom, but through his direct experience, the product of his personal efforts and his personal explorations, he realized freedom. And what's more, it wasn't some magical thing that happened all of a sudden, some unexplainable thing, or something that was bestowed upon him from up above. The Buddha saw with great clarity the effects of certain practices on the heart and mind. His vision saw perfectly this, this system that was powerful, yet flexible, yet adaptable for almost all personality types. It's a masterpiece of pedagogy. And he almost didn't teach it. I'll get to that story. I think it's a very important moment in the history of 
of our species. And I find myself fascinated by these moments in history where it seems like uh, on, on one little event, there's a whole shift in the current of history, one little event. And I drive up here the back way from Charlottesville. I come up 81 and I come across, sometimes I'll cut across. And we've been coming up here a lot. And there's some really special history in this area. I mean, you, if you come from the west, you see the signs, uh, um, you know, for the Antietam battlefield. Now, Antietam is a very uh, special event in, in American history. And there was one moment there that possibly changed the history of mankind by just an one ordinary person. And it happened before the battle even began. Okay, the setting. 1862, the war's been on for a little while. The, the strategists of the South already realized that the writing is pretty much on the wall. They didn't have the industrial capacity. They didn't have the population. Um, they were already blockaded on all sides by the Union Navy. They didn't have much of a Navy. So they, their only hope was if they were recognized as a separate nation by France and Britain in particular and the rest of Europe. France and Britain, they would have loved to seen the United States weakened, cut in two. Um, but they weren't going to back a loser. So they're waiting. And, and the Confederate, uh, you know, um, dignitaries and politicians that were in Europe, you know, the Europeans are saying, well, show me. Show me you can stand on your own. So they designed this plan. They were going to invade the North, September 1862. And they came, they came up from Virginia, not too far from here. The, the, the uh, Confederate states called it the Battle of uh, Sharpsburg. Uh, Union calls it Antietam. And the plan was this, to invade the North, lots of publicity. And Lee had devised this fabulous battle plan. He was going to meet McClellan. McClellan had twice as many uh, soldiers. But his plan was brilliant. He was going to defeat McClellan, and then he was going to head directly to Washington because there was nothing between Sharpsburg, Sharp, Sharpsburg and Washington, D.C. He was going to lay siege to Washington, take the city if he could, get recognized by Europe, have the Europeans break the blockade, and basically sue for peace in 1862, divide the nation, continue with slavery, um, and get, get what they wanted. And it was a great plan. So as, as it unfolded before the battle, they're moving up through, um, through parts of Maryland. Lee is sending out um, couriers to his, I don't know, six or eight generals that he had in the field, and they were scattered in different areas. This is Union territory, more or less. And so it was return receipt. You'd send somebody out on horseback, they'd come back. Lee would know he, they, they got the battle plans. Um, so they all come back but one. You know, Lee said, well, you know, he's just late. Well, what happened in Frederick, this one, one guy, just a private a cavalryman, good with his horse, had a good horse. He'd been riding a long time, so he stops. He came across a few other Confederate soldiers, a rear guard for A.P. Hill's troops. So they're like having breakfast, 
having some coffee, some beans, whatever, resting his horse. He's been riding all night. Around the corner comes a Union cavalry. They, these guys, are just a few of them, they hop up on their horses, they take off out of there. But that courier left the battle plans by the campfire. Complete, detailed battle plans. They were in the hands of McClellan by that afternoon. Now, McClellan's thinking, this is a trick. Lee would never do this. He wouldn't send some guy out there that was going to do something like this. Well, but he had the plans. So if he would have trusted that he really had the plans, he would have crushed the Confederate army that next day. But he kind of hedged his bets. So they fought to basically a draw in Antietam Creek. But to this day, it's the bloodiest day in all of American military history. There are 23,000 casualties in one day just down the road from here. Lee went back into Virginia, and the rest is history. A war of attrition. The war went on for a few more years. So that one, one kid, basically, that one, one young man, that lapse of mindfulness, that fear, left those plans there in his saddlebag. The plans were wrapped around a couple of cigars Lee was sending to some general. Changed the whole course of history. Because if you think about it, all right, what would have happened if we were two separate nations? How would have that affected things going forward? Historians say Lee would have won that battle and there would have been nothing between him and Washington. You know, what would have been like a weakened nation in World War I or especially in World War II? Would have we been able to pull it off? And if we hadn't been able to pull it off, what would things be like? And how long would have slavery gone on in the South? You know, one guy, history changes. So that's our local history. And the Buddha had such a moment that I alluded to where he wasn't sure he wanted to teach this stuff. There's a sutta that addresses this, and it's, um, for those of you that aren't familiar with the suttas, the, the, uh, the discourses of the Buddha were memorized and then they were written down several hundred years later, and there are thousands of pages of, of them. Uh, and this is one, uh, I'll read you some excerpts. And if you've never read one, they're kind of interesting. They take you back into history 2,500 years ago, and you get to see a little bit what it was like in northern India at that time. So, as it goes here, I have heard that on one occasion, when the Blessed One was newly enlightened, he was staying at the Uruvela on the bank of the Naranjara River, at the foot of the goatherd's banyan tree. Okay, after he was enlightened, he spent a number of weeks just in bliss, basically. His mind was clear, everything was clear. Maybe you had some of those moments, but these were continuous for weeks. So he's resting under this tree by the river. Then, while he was alone and in seclusion, a reflection arose in his awareness. This Dhamma that I have discovered is deep, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, refined, not within the sphere of reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise, 
But this generation delights in attachment, is excited by attachment, enjoys attachment. Sounds like an endless complaint. We've had one generation to the next. So he c continues in his mind. These verses come to him. Enough now with trying to teach what I found with so much hardship. This Dhamma is not easily realized by those overcome with lust and hate. Those fired by lust, obscured by darkness, will never see the abstruse Dhamma, deep, hard to see, going against the stream. So the Buddha pretty much ready to just chuck it in. This bliss was pretty nice. Why bother? Then, the sutta goes on, then the Brahma, Sahampati, he's one of the Hindu creator gods, having known with his own awareness the line of thinking in the Blessed One's awareness, thought, the world is lost, the world is destroyed. The mind of the awakened one inclines to dwelling at ease, not teaching the Dhamma. So Sahampati was getting a little freaked. I mean, what if the Buddha, after all these lifetimes, and all this work, and this awakening, and everything that he knew, decided just, I'm not telling. So then, it goes on, then just as a strong man might extend his flexed arm, or flex his extended arm, Brahma Sahampati disappeared from the Brahma world and reappeared in front of the Blessed One. Now, Buddhist cosmology gives us 31 planes of existence. In the Theravadan system, when you die, the next second, you shoot through and you end up in one of these planes of existence. There are heavenly realms, there are animal realms, hell realms, there's earth again. So, so anyway, this, this Brahman is from one of these heavenly realms, which is a very pleasurable place. You know? And it's actually hard to practice the Dharma there because it's so pleasurable. But you still have the same stuff, old age, loss, death, etc. Only your lifetime is really long and there's lots and lots of pleasure. It's probably like living in Beverly Hills or something like that. <laughs> so... Um, so he reappears, he, he uses his powers and he's just right there in front of the Buddha. Arranging his upper robe over one shoulder, he knelt down with his right knee on the ground, saluted the Blessed One with his hands before his heart and said to him, Lord, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. Let the one well gone teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are falling away because they do not hear the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. So he's making a strong case to the Buddha. And he's not just making the case for himself. He's making the case for all these other beings and all these other realms who are still on this wheel of samsara that keep getting reborn again and again and suffering and suffering. Uh, I studied uh, once uh, concentration practices with a Burmese nun. And she was very gifted. Uh, a young woman who was just a spectacular, natural-born meditator with concentration that was amazing. And she maintained that when the Dhamma is spoken, that devas from all these other realms come to the area and fill the room, and she claimed to be able to see them and feel them and that they were there. And, you know, she'd be saying this, and the next time she'd give a talk, and I'd be kind of looking around, you know, it's like... <laughs> But maybe, maybe some of you can see them, you know. 
So he, can, he continues his case. Please throw open the door to the deathless. Let them hear the Dhamma realized by the stainless one. Just one standing, just as one standing on a rocky crag might see people all around below. So, O oh wise one, with all around vision, ascend the palace fashioned of Dhamma. Free from sorrow, behold the people submerged in sorrow oppressed by birth and aging. Teach the Dhamma, O Blessed One. There will be those that will understand. Then the Blessed One, having understood Brahma's invitation out of compassion for beings, surveyed the world with the eye of an awakened one. As he did so, he saw beings with little dust in their eyes and those with much, those with keen faculties and those with dull those with good attributes and those with bad, those easy to teach and those hard. So that the Buddha begins to see and feel this. And he says, open to them are the doors of the deathless. Let those who have ears feel conviction. So he's basically on board. Foreseeing trouble, O Brahma, I did not speak the refined, sublime Dhamma among human beings. So Shamapati took this as the, Buddha, the Buddha's agreement to teach, which is, which is true. He gave a final bow to the Buddha, and as it said, he circled on his right side, disappeared back into, the Devi, into a Deva realm. The Buddha had come to see in that moment after his enlightenment, as he was resting and restoring and, you know, the essential Buddha nature in everyone. And that almost everyone in this lifetime could learn, had that capacity, almost everyone. And so just as that moment in Antietam helped end the institution of slavery in this country and hold the union together, at least up to now, the moment of the Buddha's commitment to teach began this 45-year um, teaching, this, this ministry of his. And that moment that he began to teach just might, it's maybe a little early, it's only 2,500 years, but, but might be a turning moment in the history of our species. It's not hasn't played out fully, but certainly these teachings are beginning to get traction all over the world. Now, I, I don't want you to get all, all inflated or anything, but, but your intuitive sense that's led you to practice intensively, and we don't know how many of you have practiced for previous lifetimes or what the deal is, but it's clear to me that you are among those with but little dust in your eyes. You're among those with a strong internal guidance system that w wants to seek and grow. Now these practices, the system is depicted in many, many ways and uh, Tara mentioned the dove and that's, that's, a, that's a popular and common one where it only takes flight if both wings are working and the one wing is the mindfulness and the wisdom, the understanding, and the other wing is the compassion. She can't fly without both. 
So the goal, this goal of vipassana, is wisdom. You can look at it as the opposite of ignorance, the antidote to ignorance. It's literally translated, seeing clearly what is. And what's interesting, the true wisdom always results in greater and greater compassion. The greater the understanding, the greater the compassion. Now, the, the, the crux of the Buddha's brilliant pedagogy is the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's designed to bring you to the end of suffering if you follow it earnestly. And the eight elements of the path are like a, uh, like a strong cable. You know, cables are individual strands wound together and it becomes very, very strong. A few of those, you know, strands get cut or aren't used and there's weakness in the system. So they can be grouped in three areas of, of training. There's wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. I mean, they're concerned with the refinement of our ethics, our, our virtue, our personal virtue, and by extension, virtue in society. It's one group. There's another group, wise effort wise mindfulness, and wise samadhi, or concentration, it gets translated to. And that's concerned with, you know, very directly training the heart and mind, and that's mostly what we're doing here, this, this week together. And finally, there are two, what are known as the wisdom factors. Cons you know, there, there, there's um, wise, wise view, which is the, um, also, also known as wise understanding or wise perspective. It's kind of the in, internalized embodiment of, of the knowing of the truth of nature. And there's wise intention, also sometimes called wise thought. And that can be described as, as the commitment to ethical and mental self improvement, cultivating the heart and mind, cultivating ethics. And wise intention is a kind of mental energy. It kind of gets us going, keeps us, keeps us aimed in the, in the right direction, but it's, it's, an, it's a very energetic quality. It controls our actions. And this wise understanding, this perspective, is said to be the beginning and the end of the path. I mean, it's the beginning of the path because without a little understanding, a little perspective, you'd never get off the dime. You'd never do anything. You know, but all of you here have had some moments of clarity, of understanding that's open for you. But at least feeling the motivation to, to seek greater understanding. And if that hasn't happened for you, you wouldn't be here. It's that little dust thing that you have going for you. That you are seeing, you are seeing clearly, more clearly. And all of you can probably point to times in your lives where you've had a leap of understanding or perspective or, or things have opened up for you. Maybe gradually, maybe in a leap. Uh, I, can, I can think of the spots in my life.
I remember my early years in the Catholic Church, um, not really understanding too much what was going on, but having a, a feeling of a pull into something mysterious, something larger than, larger than me. And as a, as a teenager, it's probably age 12 through 15, I would go to Mass um, every day during Lent. Lent is the 40 days before Easter. It symbolizes uh, uh, Jesus' time of meditating and fasting in the desert, his major meditation retreat. <laughs> so it was, it was six o'clock, it was a six o'clock in the morning mass at St. Thomas the Apostle Church in Bloomfield, New Jersey. So I'd have to get up pretty early and it was cold and I'd walk there, I'd have to leave about 5.30 and it was dark, you know. and. Um, I, th I felt like I was on some kind of pil pilgrimage, although if you asked me what a pilgrimage was at that age, I'd have no idea, probably. Um, and only old people went to six o'clock in the morning mass. You know? Um, it, was, uh, it's, it was an ethnic community, mostly Italian, with a bunch of us Irish thrown in and Polish thrown in. Uh, well, you know, working class community. So it was sparsely attended. The mass was said in Latin, which made it even more mysterious. Because <laughs> I didn't know what they were saying. And the old people would light candles, and they'd pray, and they would be doing the rosary. And, um, you know, they were really, really intense about what was going on. Um, they weren't dressed up, they wore shawls, a lot of threadbare coats you know, in the group. But there was something there that really touched me, even though I wasn't understanding it all. Something primordial about it. It was, it was a, a mystical feeling. The dark, the quiet, being among really earnest practitioners. That's what they were. And I, I was, even from an early age, I wasn't much of a believer. I was always a, a skeptic. More of a, what did Bob Dylan say? Don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters, you know. <laughs> but there was something compelling about that environment, and so I went back year after year. I could taste it. I loved those early morning Lenten masses, and they affected me, you know, kind of maybe got me, got me some traction. On the other hand, Sunday mass, that was a totally different story. I never felt right in Sunday Mass. Everyone's all gussied up, suits, ties, perfume. You know, it was like most people are just kind of looking at each other. You know, <laughs> everybody's kind of strutting their stuff. But my parents, they made me, you know, they wanted me to go to Mass on Sunday. My parents never went to Mass. That's another story about the fight, the, the fisticuffs my father got into with the Monsignor at the, in the parish. It's another story. But every Sunday they made me go because they didn't want me to just grow up this wild child heathen, you know. So they'd give me money for the collection basket and to pick up a newspaper on the way home. So, so I would go to the Italian bakery, get some cannolis, some jelly donuts, crumb buns, and I'd either buy or steal the paper and, and go into this nearby golf course and sit under a tree by the stream, you know, 
and I would have these really, really deep reflections <laughs> you know, on, on the essence of the jelly donut <laughs> and especially the sports page. And then I'd go home and they'd say, well, how was mass? I'd say, oh, it was great. You know. <laughs> so I'm probably going to hell. <laughs> so an event or series of events, series of events gets you started in this. But it doesn't mean you have a kind of refined, wise perspective. But there's enough to get you interested. And for many, it's a loss or a profound loneliness, which is the beginning of the search, or an illness, or something really pressing. And the view begins to open if that individual, if that person doesn't skip over or suppress those feelings. It's an important moment for us in our growth the moment when we turn toward as opposed to away. And Tara gave some of the lines from that poem from Hafiz. I'll just, I'm going to read that again with an extra line or two in it. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Let it ferment and season you. Be with in a kindly, accepting way. It's what you've all been practicing. So this, these early sprouts, this rooting of wisdom, of understanding, it's often just very, very personal. The sudden loss or illness kind of throwing your back on yourself motivating you to get real. To turn toward that experience more directly. And as you've, as you've discovered, I mean, this practice is not about rising above worldly concerns to some, you know, exalted place. It's about really embracing the experience with whatever mindfulness, acceptance and compassion, wisdom, kindness that we can bring to it. This is from Ajahn Chah. You should know both the universal and the personal, the realm of forms and the freedom not to cling to them. The forms of the world have their place, but in another way, there is nothing there. To be free, we need to respect both of these truths. The realm of forms and the freedom not to cling to them. As one teacher said, you've really got to come to know your Buddha nature and your social security number. So this, thing, this, this wisdom in the dharmic sense, it's, it's more of a verb, more of an activity than, some, than a noun, than a static noun. It's a continual throughout life refinement of your, your understanding, your view, your perspective. And as you practice, moment by moment, the 
kind of laws of nature just kind of reveal themselves to you through that direct experience of your body and your mind. Vipassana, clear seeing of what is. I like to conceive of this practice also as the direct experience of nature. Nothing more, nothing less. And it's really not an intellectual understanding. And a lot of Westerners, you know, it takes a little while to, to, to kind of go beyond that. There is a real intellectual seductiveness to this philosophy. And granted, it's really rich intellectually. Lots of nuanced concepts to examine and learn and all the lists, etc. All well and good. But what works for us in collecting um, worldly intellectual knowledge, which is namely reading more and more and collecting more and more data, it doesn't work in cultivating the wisdom in the Dharma. Now, of course, you need some conceptual understanding or, uh, to get going, and it supports our framing of the practice. But an endless intellectual pursuit uh, becomes a hindrance. This from Fen Yang. He's a 10th century uh, Zen master. When you are deluded and full of doubt, even a thousand books of scripture are not enough. When you have realized understanding, even one word is too much. You notice if, you know, that the Buddha, oftentimes, an awful lot, he's always using the word direct. You know, I experienced directly, or I saw directly how it was. I knew directly. There's always this emphasis on the direct connection to the experience, connecting, sustaining that connection. turning toward the experience, kindness, equanimity. You've heard it over and over. You're probably ready to like, uh. But it's important. It's the key to everything. And wisdom certainly is not some end product that you get from practicing. There's a steady movement towards greater and greater knowing. It's like eating a great meal. You know, each bite can be really fulfilling. You don't have to wait till the end you know, to benefit from it. So every time you take a look at what's present in the present in the mind, wisdom is enhanced. So let's do a ref let's do a reflection together. So find a comfortable position, bring yourself inside, maybe take a couple of deeper breaths. So turn your mind on your mind, back toward your mind. And notice, is there greed in the mind in this moment? Are you wanting something, anything, 
Maybe there's just pure wanting without an object. Is there any subtle leaning or grasping in one direction or another? Maybe for that cup of tea you're going to have later or that head on the pillow. Now, if you notice that there is no greed, just a kind of open-hearted accepting of what, what's, what's here, that's non-greed, the absence of greed. What is that like? Just notice that. Likewise, is there aversion in the mind? Any flavor of that? Anger, fear, guilt, shame. Not wanting something. Or is the mind free from aversion in this moment? What does non-aversion feel like? And is it there any bewilderment, bewilderment in the mind right now? Confusion. Or is the mind free of bewilderment? Okay. Just simple mindfulness. What's in the heart and mind right now? Sharon Salzberg tells a story when she was traveling in Asia and she had heard that there were these three monks who had memorized all of the Pali Canon, literally thousands of pages. So she wanted to go see them, so she finds her way to them and wants to hear what they have to say. So through an interpreter, she asks them, well, you have memorized all of the Buddha's teachings You've studied this your, all, your whole lives. These are elderly guys. Can you boil it down for me? And so they kind of conversed and back through the translator. And the response was, know what you're doing when you're doing it. Know what you're doing when you're doing it. It's all those vast teachings. So if you occasionally reflect as you go through the day, Okay, what's present in the mind and heart? Wanting, not wanting, confusion. You start to see the results of those various mind states. You begin to have a more direct experience of cause and effect. And over time, you begin to notice that when you're thinking, speaking, acting from a place of greed, fear, hatred, delusion, the result is often some manner of contraction, grief, pain, or suffering. And the opposite's also true. When you're thinking, speaking, and acting from a, uh, from a place of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, the result is more of an openness, more clarity, more ease. The heart is more open. 
And over time, reflecting, just checking here and here and then, directly experiencing that chain of cause and effect, it really sets the stage for transformation. You come to know the Dharma directly. The Dharma is becoming visible for you. And as the Buddha said, everything is based on mind, is led by mind, is fashioned by mind. If you speak and act with a polluted mind, suffering will follow you as the wheels of the ox cart follow the footsteps of the ox. Everything is based on mind, is led by mind, is fashioned by mind. If you speak and act with a pure mind, happiness will follow you as a shadow clings to a form. So with practice mindfulness, you look into the heart-mind with a with a relaxed, kindly manner. And if you recognize that there's a little bit of greed, a little bit of hatred, fear, delusion, or whatever in the mind, the interesting thing is just that recognition in that moment changes that relationship to that event. Because before that moment, you might have been identified, you might have been driven by this, but in that moment of recognition, there's some opportunity. Maybe an opportunity to relax that. Maybe an opportunity to reflect on it. It's that R factor in RAIN. And if you experience that there is non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion in the mind, well then there is the, there is the possibility to just rest in that joy, that open awareness. And just allowing the nervous system to become restored and sensitized to this restful state. And as you enter more deeply into this, into this cycle of virtue, training the heart and mind as you're doing here this week and in your daily practice, seeing more clearly what leads to harm and suffering in yourself and in the world, and what leads to benefits for all and ease in yourself and the world. You're, you'll just you'll you'll begin to find yourself compelled further to refine your thoughts, words, and actions. You really have no choice in this practice. The practice then starts to do you. In a way, you as you cultivate some momentum some traction, the practice starts to do you. You notice that, like when you're in the health food store, and, and you notice your hand pulls back from the bin of the cocoa-dusted almonds that cost $15 a pound, you know, and you didn't snatch it out of the bin, you know. Or you notice when you find yourself gossiping, or you're stretching the truth, you know, and you get this toxic feeling. It's like, oh, I know what that is. You know, and you kind of maybe stop right there. Or in the wintertime, you come across a spider in your house and you're thinking, oh my gosh, do I really want to put it outside in the winter? I know what that'll do. So maybe you go and you find a plant and you put it on the plant inside. I mean, that's what I do. It's just, y you start to get some, some traction. And even if you take a stink bug and you put it out, you might actually have a pang of remorse. 
Maybe not. You know, the worst thing that I find is like, you know, you, you go to the bathroom, you turn around, you're going to flush the toilet, and you say, oh my God, there's somebody swimming in there. You didn't see them. All right, now what do you do? Do you flush? You know, or do you take a little bit of toilet paper as like a, a rescue ladder, and you put it down, and you say, okay, climb out, you know, and you, you put them somewhere. A couple of years ago, I had this mouse invasion in the winter. I don't know if I men ever mentioned it here, but it always impressed on my mind. And it's still the ramifications of it are still going on. But in this winter, I captured more than 200 mice. And I, and I, had, I had these have-a-heart mousetraps all over the place. And they were like have-a-heart hotels. <laughs> where you could catch five or six mice in an evening. You just slather some peanut butter in there, they run in in the morning. So I would take them over to where I had this brush pile and I'd all my compost had been piled there for like 20 years of brush and compost. So it's this mound. It became like a mouse condominium. <laughs> and my friends would tell me, oh, these are just the same mice coming back in the house. So I thought, I can test that. So I got this can of really bright green paint. And when I would catch the mice, I'd hold them and I'd dip their tail in the paint and I'd let them, let them go. And they never returned. But then I started questioning myself. You know, okay, so I set up this thing out there. And then I started to notice there was this owl that started just spending a lot of time in this dead tree right next to the pile. And I started noticing this fox on a regular basis out there. You know. And in the summer, it's just black snake heaven. You know. So what did I really do? You know, I moved him out and created this mouse carnage over there. I was doing the best I could. And that's all we can do. So we reflect and we, we act the best that we can. And sometimes the results aren't what we hope for. It. <laughs> and then we forgive ourselves, like this afternoon in forgiveness practice. So the practice begins to do you. You start thinking about these, you know, little things, these ways of harm that you do to yourself and to others. And so when this reflecting on, on non-harming becomes a regular part of your life, uh, there's really an uplifting that you begin to sense. And there's an increase in joy because what's happening is, if you're paying attention to the amount of harm you're doing, there's less remorse in your life. You know, you're creating less things to be remorseful for gosh, let's face it, we have enough things to be remorseful for without continually adding to it. Let's do, an, let's do another short reflection. And we'll head in, a, head in a little different direction on this one. So take some breaths. Maybe hold the breath for a second or two and then release it. Do that two or three times. 
and go inside and imagine this spaciousness inside, this open aliveness, this vibration, this energy, this movement. Imagine that you can feel directly this flow of nature moving through you. These changing sensations within the body, within this spacious, alive, vibrating. Maybe a mist of emotions moving through. This open field of awareness. Thoughts playing out. Just sitting, directly experiencing this, this dynamic play. And now allow your awareness to kind of extend out beyond your body. Sensing the permeable boundaries of, of this quote-unquote body. Awareness doesn't have boundaries. Sensing the movement inside. Sensing the movement outside. Sensing into the aliveness of others, that spacious, vibrating aliveness of everyone in this room. And that vibrating aliveness of the space between us. The bubbling coming into existence and dissolving of all phenomena. Movement, vibration, inside, outside, changing, changing, changing. Now from your direct experience right now, can you begin to intuit, can you begin to imagine that trying to resist or stop this dynamic flow of nature is impossible. Can you intuit and imagine that? And can you intuit how the struggle to try to stop or control this flow of change can be stressful? That efforting can be stressful. And maybe as you relax back into that flow of aliveness and vibration, maybe you can begin to sense the impersonal nature of this. That it's nature playing through all of us, everything. It's awareness, knowing activity. It's awareness, knowing movement knowing change. Okay. So, paying attention directly like that to this powerful, dynamic, changing nature of this creation sensitizes you 
will sensitize you to the most fundamental law of nature, which is change. And knowing that trying to stop it, to hold it, is fruitless. And that's the key to understanding suffering. Resisting nature will cause stress. And as you get more and more sensitized to this flow, and you may, you may get some glimpses into the illusions of this solid, separate self. And with poking some holes in that comes with it a greater joy because you don't have to work so hard to frantically propping up, puffing up, and defending this illusion of a separate, solid, embattled self. And maybe you begin to see through, this is me, this is mine, this is I. And maybe you begin to feel directly that it's just all manner of activity bubbling up, bubbling away. Now, right, you know, right along with this understanding, this deepening of understanding, compassion rides along. As confusion clears in the mind, the illusion of separateness begins to fade a little bit. The causes of suffering are seen more directly. When you see your suffering, suffering in the world, when you see people really wanting happiness, and then doing things that bring the opposite, your heart just automatically quivers in response. A desperate, clinging, grasping, fear, hatred, delusion, that the thrashing around. When you begin to see clearly that the endless seeking of material and sensual pleasures only gives brief momentary pleasure. And when you begin to see that the, the, this having this sense of this totally separate self is driving people to do unspeakable things in the world. And when you hear the, war, the news, the latest war and conquest, and you see behind it the fear and the hate, that's that ignorance driving it. And when you look at all the resources that are utilized to create weaponry more and more each year, driven by fear, you begin to see that. And when you begin to see the ruthless exploitation of the weak, see it clearly. And the cruel discrimination of those who seem like the other. Your heart automatically responds. It can't help it. And when you see and feel the environment being decimated in service to a, to a world economic system, that no longer makes sense. An entire economic system in the world predicated on the accepted belief that economies must grow exponentially forever, laying waste to the environment in a desperate struggle to get more resources and more energy to fuel this concept. Where in nature can you find exponential growth forever? 
You can find it for a while, and then you find collapse. So what level of delusion, mass delusion is there? It's really sad. Everyone wants to be safe and happy. But the driving forces of ignorance create the opposite. The amount of suffering on this planet is enormous. It's horrible, and at times it makes me weep. It breaks my heart open. And, it, and as you come to understand more, in more nuanced ways the causes of suffering, and you see it everywhere, your heart gets very tender. But as Yogi Berra often said, it ain't over till it's over. The Buddha did decide to teach. He gifted humanity a system that, that, that answers the powers of ignorance. I take some hope, a smidgen of hope, in, in seeing his teachings and other wisdom teachings spread throughout the world, gain favor. So we come together, you know, we, we listen deeply, listen carefully to that inner voice. And that itself can be scary. So many thoughts gushing here and there. What inner voice? Can I trust it? So you keep at it. Trial and error. Make some mistakes. Forgive, you, forgive yourself. You go on. You learn to see through your limiting beliefs. The, the if only this didn't happen to me belief. The, I never can belief. The, I should. These are only just beliefs. You start, when you start seeing through those beliefs, you start to touch into an intuitive wisdom that's been there all along. It's like Michelangelo's response when he was asked about how in the world did you create this sculpture of David? How did you do this? And he said, look, that statue was always there in the stone. It was just my job to uncover it. Just my job to uncover it. It was always there. And the Buddha said, luminous is this mind brightly shining. Your true nature is never lost. Never. Sometimes it's covered with challenging energies, as Jonathan spoke about the other night. But it's never lost. I mean, so much of this is a mystery. I mean, so much is a mystery. And you get caught again and again. And it's a very humbling process. And as your understanding, even as your understanding grows, you, you will find ways to resist that temptation of saying, oh, now I've got the final knowing. Keep sacred your eternal humility in this process. You listen again and again as if it's the first time you're listening to that inner truth, that inner voice, trusting in the awareness. Trusting in the awareness and resting in this mystery that's this wonder of life. So let's 
Let's sit for a minute. This is from Hafiz. It's called Deepening the Wonder, one of my favorites. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in a tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.